0: This week on TumbleVision, episode 51, Brady Forrest, O'Reilly man about town and co-founder of Ignite, chats with me and Kevin about social media and the Egyptian revolution, humanizing huge quantities of data, i.e. can LinkedIn data help tumblers make connections, and the founding mythology of the global Ignite phenom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tummel Vision, episode number 51, with our guest this week, Brady Forrest. Say hi, Brady. Hey,
1: Deb. Hey, Kevin. Hey, all you tumblers.
0: So, Tummel Vision is a weekly podcast that we do every Thursday evening where we talk about... The art and the science of engaging and collaborating in a networked age. Each week we explore the impact of tumbling on business, culture, and technology with the smart folks creating this new world. For those who are joining us for the first time, a Tumbling, um was some is tumbling is a Yiddish word and a tumler was someone who was hired at weddings to get everyone to dance someone who catalyzes others to action and we believe that how do you collaborate in a networked age how do you run things when life is not a bunch of command and control hierarchies Yetemel so the ho- the show is hosted by myself Deb Schultz and Kevin Marks. say hello Kevin
2: hi there this is Kevin Marks in San Jose.
0: And Heather Gold, who is sadly not with us this week, she um, had to be with her family. She lost her grandmother, Grams, as she calls her. And our guest this week, as I mentioned, is Brady Forrest, man about town for O'Reilly and co-founder of the Ignite series, for those of you who have heard of Ignite. Ignite. <laughs> and Brady, where are you sit- Good night. And Brady, where are you sitting today?
1: Uh, I am currently on the Google campus in Building Forty Two, in a in a little conference room out of the way.
0: Awesome and and uh, anyone still around? Or are you are you hiding out?
1: I I am in like a fishbowl. I'm opposite <laughs> the the kind of the bulletin board where the Google master plan is often drawn.
0: Oh good um, oh good oh good. And do you and see them?
1: As everybody is leaving, they just keep looking in at me. Like, what is that guy doing talking to his laptop? <laughs>
0: well, are you wearing orange pants or plaid pants?
1: No, no. I'm, I'm quite muted today, actually.
0: Well, I'm just, uh, for those listening, it's kind of sad we're not in the video today because Brady's pants rock. So, <laughs> as do his shirts, often. Like. So, um, we're gonna, uh, there's a couple of things we should talk about this week, um, that are definitely directly impact um, our show and what we talk about here with Tumbling. Wouldn't you say, Kev?
2: Yep. This I would little, say so.
0: little, um, sort of demonstrations and uprisings happening in Cairo, in Tahrir Square in the Middle East. I find that really fascinating, Brady. Have you been paying attention?
1: I have been paying attention, and uh, some Egyptian friends who are over here in the states who are quite happy that they may get a liberated government for uh, by next year's Christmas.
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting. You know, just looking at it from a media point of view, how every every time this this seems to happen lately. Luckily, it's happening often enough, right? It's sort of like the media jumps on this. Thanks to social media, <laughs> you know we have uh, open democracy, etc. And I think they oversimplify the point, but it does pay, play an interesting part. Have you guys seen ha, what what interesting things sort of happened online, and what interesting tumbling did you see related to um, sort of the uprising this week? Anyone have anything specific?
1: Well, I mean, I think in terms of the media jumping on the social media bandwagon, it's it becomes the view by which you know people not in that area get to see what's happening, and that's where that meme comes from. Right. It's we suddenly have just yeah. a whole new view on it, and so it's, it's kind of like in the early days of blogging when so many stories were about blogging. We're still right. kind of like there's so many stories on social media about social media, and we're right. still. Well, Especially but there's media also th- still figuring it all
0: out. Yeah, that's a really good point, Brady, that when it's something is new, you focus on the, the channel as opposed to... Well, not as opposed to, and, as well as, I think. I think what It's, it? focus- it's, it's
2: like. also the thing that all the people blogging and all the people on Twitter have that in common. And so they will feel ably- able to, to comment on that aspect of it, whereas they probably don't know much about the political situation in Egypt. And so you end up with a sort of surfeit of, dis- of meta-discussion precisely because they're all using the same tool and therefore... Can wade in on that topic rather than, you know, the the exact history of um, Mubarak's regime, which most of us don't know much about. Um, The the fascinating thing for me was the um, the way that Al Jazeera was spread through through Twitter and blogging and through the 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 the, the sort of Tumblr media, if you like, um, at the point where the American media weren't covering this at all. and it it took you know obviously it took them a while to get there but then, then now you know CNN has 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 said oh right we should put some people in Egypt and has everyone out there but right. for for the first week it um, as you know as the demonstration started and as the internet was shut down in Egypt it was Al Jazeera that was that was um, getting everything out and um, and that was being relayed across the net by everyone.
0: Yeah, interesting, a really interesting, um, point there because I, I, I mean, I was talking more about sort of the mainstream media. The story, as Brady was saying, keeps becoming and social media and social media. And it is, it's a huge part of how this information gets out, thankfully. Um, I found it interesting today that, um, I, I actually really like the fact that the media is, you know, refers to themselves as our brethren, you know, because there's a lot of media that have been, um, Beaten and are struggling to get their voices out. So to your point, I like when the media is tumbling other media, uh, you know, as opposed to viewing each other as competitions and rating wars. So it it it's sort of a glass half full view of stuff. I thought that was really interesting, Um, and it it does tend to happen. if 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 it's sort of the best part of journalism, we like to. We like to sort of rag on the mainstream journalists a lot, but I think the best part of it is is that function that they can do. And uh, I think that, that that was pretty straightforward. Um, I, I also do find that, there, interestingly enough, I didn't see one or two yet voices of actual. you know, um, you know how very often, it, um, you know, with Iran, there were one or two people who took, you know, sort of primary function. This really does feel like a very crowdsourced Anonymous in a good way. Sorry?
1: That happened with Haiti as well, where there were people who kind of rose up and, like, their voices were heard.
0: Above the others.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I was actually, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Ushahidi group. They do do a lot of work with Haiti. And Patrick Meyer was telling me about tools that they're building uh, to help deal with kind of this deluge of data. Yes. Uh, And Swift River... At swift.ushihiri.com is an open source tool that will let you take in all this real-time data and it will cluster it. And then based on who is tweeting it, what type of story, like what type of data you're getting, it will start to have veracity around it so that you don't have kind of, you know, did you see that one meme about uh, Pepsi shooting a commercial and you know, Piccadilly square square, and then it became shoot someone's, there's a shooting in Piccadilly square. Yes. Uh, right. <laughs> oh,
0: that's
1: great. You know, nice. and it was a quick game of telephone and suddenly Lady Gaga's in Piccadilly square shooting, you know, blah, 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 blah. Uh, broken,
0: broken telephone, actually. Exactly.
1: Very With Swift River, hopefully you'd be able to figure out, okay, what is counter information? What is uh, corrupted information?
0: That's great.
1: And things like that, you know, because data as journalism is a pretty powerful meme, and a pretty powerful movement. And we need to kind of, with social media, you suddenly get really kind of dirty news. And I think tools like Swift River and maybe like Think Tank from uh, Expert Labs will really I knew help. You'd have,
0: I knew you'd have a list of, of URLs for us tonight. I just <laughs> We're gonna, we're gonna put them all in the show notes. I can never keep up with, I always think that, Kevin and I like to think that we have our ear to the ground, but as O'Reilly's man about town, Brady knows about a startup before the founders have even thought about it. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Ushahidi because they were on my list to talk about tonight and one of our shows and tonight is as good as any. And if anyone who listens to the show is interested, they do something that I love, which is you can now join their standby task force. If you go to Ushahidi, I'm actually on their standby task force. I'm sort of helping them to make it a little more Tumblr-like and human. Well, I'd like to spend more time with and I'd love to meet Patrick to talk about it. But it's basically you volunteer to have your hand up that when data needs to be, when something like this, uh, whether it's a crisis, uh, an environmental crisis or a political crisis or something that Ushahidi wants to help out with on the ground, you're sort of on standby. So the most recent one was the... Um, uh, two, two, two days ago was the cyclone going to hit the north coast of Australia. And you get emails um, and, and says, hey, please let us know if you'll be on standby for helping us with this. And I think it's brilliant because it's a combination and a realization of it's both tools and people that make this stuff work, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, their tools are really all about harnessing crowdsourced data and crowdsourced right. work. You know, mm-hmm. they work really closely right. with SamaSource and Crowdflower, and it's just Pretty great uh, set of tools that are going to be used more widely. Crowdmap being a, the hosted version of Ushahidi, that right. I think is really make the the platform itself kind of explode.
0: So I'm looking at our chat room here, and um, I'm making a note that our producer Andrew has put in that Malcolm Gladwell wrote again about social media and politics. Did anyone read? Um, did either of you guys read um, <coughs> what what he wrote in the New Yorker this week? I'm just curious. Um, it was
2: it was very thin. It was like yeah well, look, it doesn't it wasn't to do with Twitter anyway. It's like, you know, it, the the definitive answer to that was, was Cory Doctorow's one, um, mm-hmm. where he, where the reviewer of of Gany Morozov's book about this, where, where he said, look, we're not saying that these tools are causing this at all, but they do make organizing things a lot easier. Um, and, you know, he says, when I was an activist years ago, we had to make flyers and staple them to lamp posts and build telephone trees and use all this stuff. And that didn't mean it was a, a telephone tree revolution. But it, it, what it meant was that these were tools um, that actually help people coordinate, and that, that's, you know, that, I think that's all that's being said. And then there's this overrepresentation um, that is done by the media of, of talking about Twitter revolutions or Facebook revolutions or whatever, and that, that you know, that 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 is missing the point in, in 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 many ways. I think.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, it is really an interesting. Uh, we seem to be in this midst of everyone thinking it's either one thing or the other. Right. It's either these tools are great or these tools are horrible. And, you know, we're here to say that um, and not or. So, Brady, we t- um, this week was Strata Conference. O'Reilly put on the first yeah. big conference about big data, <laughs> I would like to say. Um, Kevin, you attended yesterday. I attended for a nanosecond this morning as did Brady. <laughs> um, why don't you say a little bit about what the conference is about when we say data? and what was really interesting
1: um this so you know more and more of these tools that we have our phones sensors we are just creating data at an enormous rate and there's a lot of value to be had in that kind of quote unquote data exhaust and so there's coming I mean, rise up just a kind of a, a whole new profession around it and a whole new set of tools first for storing the data you know this is no tools um often combined with Cloud Storage or, you know, within your own firewall. Uh, But then actually being able to run queries against that data, uh, being able to process it with tools like Hadoop and accessing it with, say, PIG or statistical packages like R. Um, And so this conference this week was basically bringing all those people together, uh, getting them to share their secrets and to talk about what works what doesn't work, and how you can bring a culture of big data to your organization. And the talk that I thought that I really enjoyed today was DJ Patil. He's the chief data scientist at LinkedIn.
0: That was my favorite.
1: They've been, you know, really digging into the data at LinkedIn. They know where, they know what career paths are like. They know what schools are best. They know what skills you need to get that next job. And they're constantly exposing that in new ways. Today they launch skills, which is a way of finding out, you know, you know Java. Is that in more or less demand? What other skills do you need? What jobs are there like that? Who are the people that you should try and emulate uh, who are considered Java experts?
0: I thought that, that was real I thought that was really interesting. One of the things that I liked um, about the way that LinkedIn is thinking about skills and a lot of this stuff is that They're starting to – we're starting to realize now that we're all connected and have this social graph that we need to be less binary in how we view ourselves and, you know, friend, not friend, right, job, not job. So by looking at it as uh, on a skill level, right, instead of at a title level. Um, it starts taking data and flipping it around, and we start using data to make us smarter about each other. I mean, to me, the big exciting thing about everyone online today and doing stuff is we're making all these gestures. Now, let's make us, now, let's use this data to make us smarter and and lead better lives and be more efficient. Um, was it a really, really, Kevin, you were there as well. Was it really geeky? Are they sort of getting the concept that? Um, you do need human beings to act as curators around some of this big data.
2: Um, there was there was some back and forth. I think it it, it was basically a really geeky conference. Oh yeah. Um, but a lot of the the talks were people saying, "Well, once we've got these tools, we have to we have to think about what we should be looking for and how we interpret it." And there was a great talk by um, Matt Bidulph where he was saying that the job of the data scientist is um, to be um, the sort of hands in the clay for the designers and help them, you know, give them the answers to the open-ended questions they ask and say, what what's new? Um, a, a lot of the theme of it was rather than trying to fit all the data in the world into schemas that have been designed in advance, this new model is pulling all the data you can find into, into the, the network in whatever format you can get and then writing tools to try and extract sense from it um, using you know, using these map reduced like frameworks um, to, to to see if you can what signals you can find in there, so Matt gave the example of he was working with um, Tom Coates um on thinking about how they could make sense of different cities and they they said, okay, um, if we look at um, which tiles from the map are people fetching um, on their phones, we can see where people are looking at their, looking at their maps most and that will give us the most confusing parts of the city. Um, if we look right. at... Right. It's just
0: a really smart way of, It's almost... To me, it's really interesting because when you get smart people um, addressing data who really understand user behavior, then you get really interesting tools. If you're just looking at data to crunch data and numbers, I think what's interesting about Strata is it seemed to be, or what's happening with, with a lot of these data companies today. I don't know if you agree with this, Brady, is that there, it, there seems to be a, a, a good subset of people who kind of come from the web world and are starting to look at data, not in, in this sort of academic big data abstraction way, but like in the way you were saying, Kevin, we can make you more useful tools if we think why are these gestures happening, right? So it is more human in a lot of ways. Yes. Right? I, I, I like that. You, you were going to bring up another example. I interrupted you. I'm terrible. <laughs> <laughs> you can't remember it, can you?
2: <laughs> Me? Um, <laughs> um, so, well, the other thing that, that several people were saying was that um, hiring people with, with a liberal arts training is really helpful when you're trying to, to do this stuff. that was, was another thread I got from um, two or three talks there. Uh, I'd, love, I'd love to, hit, I'd I'd love to hear yes. I'd love to hear more about the
0: I'm sorry, okay um uh, ancestry
2: Is that better?
0: yes what would you love to hear more about
2: I'd love to hear more about the LinkedIn stuff because I had a nice chat with with DJ yesterday but I didn't see the talk and I was I was I liked the visualizations the personal visualization maps they did but was, what what else was he saying today
1: um he was talking about how you know often Data groups don't get to ship, and it's as though they're working at Yahoo. Uh, that was his joke, and uh,
0: <laughs> that's so mean.
1: Okay. It was pretty mean um,
0: and, and very geeky for those listening tonight. Yeah, it, Go ahead.
1: got a muffled chuckle uh, yeah. at the conference, <laughs> and mm. but basically, that data, like these data, um, the data group needs to be able to ship, and they need to have a culture, the company needs to have a culture of understanding that data should be saved, data should be examined, and that data is something that um, can be turned into a product. Uh, And I mean, this is something that financial agencies know, advertising agencies know. uh,
0: I'd argue with you about the advertising agencies, but uh, they use the data for doing other stuff. I don't think they view the data itself as a product. I think that's a big difference. Okay, yes. It's, a hu- it's actually a huge difference. It's something that I argue with companies about all the time. Co- big companies and agencies use my gestures on the world to, um, to sell more stuff to me, but they don't necessarily use it about making me smarter about my relationship with them. They're starting to, or about my relationship with Brady, with you and I, right? So there's a lawsuit this week, actually, um, from, uh, on Safeway. Um, because Safeway actually doing a very good job of customizing data, big data to give me better special coupons and and prices and on things that I buy uh, and yeah it 's big brotherish, but they do are tailoring it well there 's a lawsuit one coming out of San Francisco, and I think Boston. two people got together and said, "Well, if they are giving me information and telling me what to buy, then when an item is recalled, they should proactively call me and tell me that an item has been recalled because they know what i 've bought
2: right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I I tweeted about the article today and it's very VRM like. So I, I I think it's really, to me, it's a really fact, fascinating oxymoron in a way that's going on that big data is actually making us more human, can make, can, can bring us more meaning. I think that's a new thing. Don't you think so? Well,
2: I think and the, other, the other thing that I got from Strata was that big data is is something of a misnomer. It's more that there were a set of techniques we had to use on big data because the old techniques broke down ah. um, and then you can apply doesn't necessarily just have to apply them to big data they, they, you could start applying them to small scale data as well um and so I'm definitely interested in the um the personal data store personal data ecosystems right. stuff that um clear and Mary and the others in, in the i w group are talking about. Um, with the idea that you should be able to bring more of your data back under your own control and selectively share that with um, the, these large organizations that, that want it. Um, and the point there is not to necessarily displace you know, the, the, the Facebooks of the world, but to displace the thousands of these bad consumer databases like Safeway has that are mostly full of noise. Um, because we don't care about them, with with something that is that is actually more attuned to to helping us out, and and the quid pro quo for that is that Safeway is actually gets better data because we care about it. You know, I, I my the, I put my phone number at Safeway, and some random person's name come up who who'd registered that phone number, and I don't care. Um, and they give they say thank you, Mister Goodmanson. Manson. Really? Uh, and I, yes. Oh yeah, no, I've
1: the same I have the same thing at, at Safeway, except I use an ex girlfriend's phone number.
0: I should be doing it, that. I'm such an idiot.
1: Registered to some other person.
0: We should we should pick a random day called Hack the Hack the Marketing Databases Day where everyone does that. You know.
2: Well, the, the thing is, you know, it's every tenth thing you get a free what's it. So if we all use the right. same number, well, we'll get through those more quickly.
0: Should we all use eight six seven five three zero
2: nine? <laughs> the same area code, and then the Jenny same already area. has that.
0: Jenny Jenny already has that number. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, That's an '80s song, doesn't it?
0: Was there a lot? You know, I, I we'll go we'll move very quickly past sort of big data and you know big government into short talks in a second with on Ignite. But was there any? Uh, O'Reilly conferences tend to be very glass half full, which is why I love them. But was there a lot, any talk about the Big Brother bad data? How do we keep our stuff personal? To Kevin's point,
1: I, I do not know. Uh, but I am sure that that is a topic that, and I mean, you you look at location sharing, right? The, the platforms are now live, the apps are now there, and so you have, I think, two things really holding people back. One is, well, brother, why would I, why would I do this? And I think that's somewhat generational. Um, and then you've got kind of the f- fear slash just don't really. Want to share, and I think that that is going to be the same with data. You know, data is going to location is just another type of data, one that has more fear associated with it, with it being shared, with it being discovered, and we're going to see as those databases become more prevalent and larger and accessed by more people that there will be a lot of concern around what happens to that data, what the lifetime is of that data, like search queries. Um, right, and you know what companies do with it, and what is the data manifesto? There's a great, there's a MIT professor by the name of Sandy Pentland, uh, who's an advisor to a company called Sense Networks, and Sense Networks takes uh, cab data to figure yeah. out w- what consumer activity looks like, and then they aggregate that up, and then they sell it to hedge funds, so that hedge funds know that oh, the middle class is spending more on cabs, thus consumer confidence is higher. Um, so we can bet more on, you know, pork bellies or something. Wait,
0: uh, cab travel has usurped the price of a Starbucks coffee for, um, economic- um,
1: I Well, you know, just as Bing would say, it's, you know, one of many signals. Right. Uh, <laughs> and-
0: that was the next topic. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> and, uh, but they wrote a data manifesto, which is, Good. you know, anybody who uses their data can delete all their data anytime. any time. Uh, you own their data and you can also delete it. You can also just delete the last 24 hours because if you delete all your data, then they'll stop giving you, say, you know their service because they no longer are getting any value from you. Um, but maybe you went somewhere that you don't want recorded in the last 24 hours. so that's a pretty good compromise. You, yes. know, you are basically you know any of these location sharing apps, it comes down to a cost benefit. Like, uh, is the features are the features that Sense Networks or Foursquare, or Gowalla, giving me worth it to share my data with them?
0: Right, right.
2: And that's and it's, it's interesting watching the Google attitude thing this week on that topic because the quid pro quo with sharing with with Google um, on your phone is you get traffic data. Um, though I think you get the traffic data anyway, but sharing means that you're you're contributing the traffic data. Yes. which is one of the most valuable things they have on the on the device um but the two thing they did this week was that they added check-ins which is a little bit ho hum um but they added check-ins um using the the smarts that they got from the google history so that they you can say that every time i go to work mark me as checked in at work every time i go home mark me as checked in at home with the the privacy constraints over who can see that so they are actually moving from the sort of marauder's map to the the weasley clock view of data where you say at home, at work, safe in mortal peril, you know, um, rather than, just, than actually saying exactly where you are. Wow.
0: So yeah. we can actually, we can uh, actually.
1: Actually, yeah. this, this comes back to a strata thing. Alistair Kroll on a panel this morning talks about how, yeah, so if you sign up to do that, then suddenly, you, if you want to go off on a tryst or go buy a birthday present or do whatever, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the fact that you're not recording suddenly becomes a really like that becomes noticeable.
0: Right, that's the signal.
1: Yeah. Yes. The
2: absence right. of a signal is also a signal. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well I, I joke that we've <laughs> time for us to buy the, <laughs> the you know buy, you know create the app or the or the software company or the service that um, pays to take me off the net everywhere for a while so I can really go on vacation or have evil world plans someone's going to come up with that <laughs> you know, so that i'm so i'm so i leave no breadcrumbs for the next month or whatever it is um it's but, it's pretty but that's, I mean, this
2: is this is this is um dana boyd's point about deniable technology she says exactly your technology has to be fragile and flaky enough that you can you can blame it when you actually want to do something else where you say oh my phone's breaking up now i'm gonna to have to hang up when you want to get rid of the call or um
0: <laughs> which, which always reminds me of a very, one of those brilliant but very funny and bad SNL commercials from back in the day, which was a competitor, quote-unquote, to Federal Express. And it was an overnight shipping company in quotations, um, which you used when your package absolutely positively had to get there yesterday. So you used them instead, and they would stomp on your package and ship it around the world, so it got lost in transit. So it gave you <laughs> deniable plausibility for why it was late. <laughs> it, it's probably on the na- online somewhere. It's absolutely brilliant. So it's when when the package absolutely positively had to be there overnight. <laughs> But think about it. I've actually – how many of you have actually tried to come up with an excuse for something and then realized, uh, no, I've probably left a breadcrumb somewhere that's going to tell – that's going to give that lie up? (laughs) White lies are ever so much harder to do. But, Brady, you make some really good points about – You know, one of my my favorite comments that I heard today at the conference was uh, when uh, DJ basically said, um, you know, talk to the room and said it takes – sort of it takes a village to make a good data product. It takes, you know, social software people. It's not – I mean, for me to hear – and that's why I'm sort of grokking that we have more sort of user-oriented, useful-oriented folks working on this new world of – large data, um, he turned to the room and said, basically, we need social people and artists and user experience designers and the whole, the whole sort of gamut of how people use stuff to create a really good product. It's never going to be about the tools. And I think, Kevin, to your point, when data and analyzing big data was in the hands of only academics, big government, and big business, they probably only looked at data through their um, objectives right so right. They, so it didn't tend to be as neutral not being the right word but as innovative perhaps um, uh, definitely not as agile so uh, this, right. is, this is this is it's a very different way to look at data today i think right
2: what is i mean the other the other sense of of, of that was that um, the is the if you the traditional way of doing something was you would design a really good model and then go and collect some, a small amount of data and process it a lot, um, and the inversion of that is collect everything because it's easy now and then work out how to process it later. and I think that was part of the, the spirit of the the strata thing as well um,
0: That's
2: good. I like that so the, the the point is that you can sort of sit there and throw a supercomputer super at, at constructing the LinkedIn network graph proximity cloud thingy that they were publishing there. <laughs> Is that a technical um, and, word? There's a there's a it's a relaxation network something, but yeah, you know <laughs> you, the thing you know the things I mean. You've seen those LinkedIn yes. maps that they they posted that look like um, they basically attach every person in your network um, to each other with elastic, and then see who gets you know strung together mm. and who gets pulled apart. Right. Um, and and so so you can see how clustered the people you know are, and it's it's interesting that. A lot of people have like a sort of big matzo ball because everyone they know overlaps and there aren't they're really distinct groups. But there are some people, um, I think Devon Biondini's was the, was the uh, most striking I saw, where it looks like a flower. It's that she has you know six distinct groups um, and she's the only person that connects them all.
0: Because Devon's a real, because she's obviously a very, um, uh, a tumbler. The person who connects lots of different yes. groups is that kind of person, the person who transfers. Yeah, those are really fun maps. So on the subject of tumbling, Brady is doing a brilliant job in our live chat room of tumbling because he is getting the links up there faster than both Kevin and Andrew. So, um, Brady, you rock. It is what you sort of do for a living in a way is to tumble. And aside from, I guess, the day job with O'Reilly, media where you co-chair the web 2 expo and the where conference and i'm probably leaving out five other conferences um you connect ideas people and businesses startups for the most part and technology you started this thing called ignite right yes you catalyzed Uh, ignite so why don't you tell us a little bit about the story of how that happened and the background on that
1: well so uh And here, wait a minute, first, just as a part of that, I, a year ago, posted my, did my Facebook network and then went in and labeled, took a screenshot of it and then labeled it. And so that's what my network looks like. And I just love this because, like, so I I label out, basically I have two big groups, Seattle and then kind of the tech community, which is the larger, broader, like San Francisco, UK, and New York. But then you can see I've got my grade school crew, high school, middle school, college, The thing is, within high school, you may see those two different rims. One was my grade and one was the year. The other rim is the year behind me, except for some of the girls from the year behind me who dated guys from my year. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. I just thought it was awesome.
0: Well, I Uh, was just about to say that if I did the same thing, it would actually be I thought I could have sworn this is a total gender thing. Right. Or at least a heterosexual gender thing. I thought you were going to say it was your year and the year above you. So obviously, girls tend to be friendly with people they're connected to, people their age and older, and guys <laughs> they are a year and younger. For obvious reasons. Well, I,
1: I took classes with the younger. Actually, I took classes with the older class too because I took languages. But yeah, I, well, I mean, boys are just immature.
0: I know, well, No, it's just funny. It's not an immaturity.
1: It's just it's a yeah, dating. No, back then. But it's uh, a high you, school dating. See, thing. There's one annotation on there, which is my fellow at O'Reilly, who lives in Seattle, Jesse Robbins, and he is the dated, or the brightest spot on my network because Aww. he marries those two groups. Huh. But
0: I like that expression, the brightest spot on your network. <laughs> um, um, that's a good one. I like it. It's literal and figurative.
1: <laughs> well, so Ignite started back in 2006. Bree Pettis and I uh, mm-hmm. were in Brussels and we wanted to do we started talking about what type of geek event could we do for Seattle. We wanted to do something that wasn't as kind of uh, not as much of a commitment as Bar Camp because we'd seen uh, the local version of Bar Camp kind of lose steam a little bit in terms of number of people, yet there were so many ideas that were out there. And I had seen people do a variation on Pekakucha at the food camp there. They called it Ask Later. And so as we were planning this event, we started explain, coming up with – Do you want
0: to explain kucha, pe- please?
1: Yes. Sorry. So Pecha Kucha is an event that started by, started by two architects in Tokyo and speakers get 20 slides, 20 seconds a slide. Uh, itself is, uh, it's, it's mostly in the architecture and design community. It's spread around the world. I, like, I, like two or 300 different cities. It's really quite spectacular. There's one in Seattle. Um, However, the folks in England, when they had gone to do a Pecacucha, they'd been asked to not do a Pecacucha. and so they came up with their own format called Ask Later. Mm. I uh, came along, saw them do it, was like, "This is great." Bree and I wanted to throw an event in Seattle. We came up with kind of a whole geek rodeo show. We had about eleven different segments that we were going to do, all of them just based on five-minute increments. I was like, "Let's have two of these time talks." Uh, but the six minute forty second thing is kind of annoying, so I lopped off five seconds from each slide to make them easier to schedule. And <laughs> then, as we actually started to schedule the whole thing out, it became we realized that we just had a huge cluster fuck on our hands. So we're like, well, for this first one, we'll just start off with a contest, and we'll just do a bunch of those time talks. And so we did the first one. We had room for one hundred and twenty five people. Two hundred people showed up including Scott Beal, a.k.a. Laughing Squid, which was the night that I met him. Hmm. And uh, he was in town for Chris Perillo's wedding. And kind of the rest is history. We did the next one. We had 400 people show up. And then I went down and did another Ignite in San Francisco. By that time, I dropped calling it Ask Later Talks because it was just confusing people. And just called it Ignite Talks. And then Cnut covered it. Then I did one at Gnome Deck's. And that's where uh, people from Portland and other cities started, started doing them. So Josh Bancroft uh, saw me run one there and said, wow, this is awesome. Let's start it. So he started a nonprofit called Legion of Tech, which now runs their bar camps and Ignite and a number of other tech events. And Ignite's now been in over 200 cities. Uh, that was all four years ago back in 2006. We're on our second global Ignite week. And next week we have, I think I believe it's 55 cities participating, all six or all six populated uh, continents. We didn't make it to Antarctica again. It's uh, so a goal for next year again. Um, we have
0: a we have a huge crowd listening to us in Antarctica. So somebody please step start up and ignite and step up. I have no idea. I'm just kidding.
1: And we do this just to bring all the igniters together. Uh, we are teaming up with Donors Choose where ten. 10 cities around the country are right. going to be given uh, $5,000 by Bing to distribute to local education projects and people at the various Ignites will be encouraged to participate. So that's about it, 55 times about, what, 10 or 20 talks. You know, there will be about 1,000 Ignite talks next week.
0: That's awesome. I think it's – for those who have not, uh, checking out uh, Ignite talks is sort of – it's like a little bit of candy in your day. If you, it, I mean, the true, the true um, excitement of night is being there in person. I feel like it's sort of mm-hmm. a modern day. I don't know. It's like kind of like an open mic, um, but an organized one uh, has a little bit in common with anyone if, if they've ever gone to a Moth event or. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or any storytelling or poetry slam. I love. It, I
1: love the Moth. So I
0: much. love the Moth. I love the Moth too, and they have a well, porch light here in San Francisco. Uh, <laughs>
2: I think the constraints are what make it, which is which is yes. um, the fact that you have to do that auto advance thing means that you really have to rehearse the the heck out of it. Um, and it was uh, it was interesting. I think when uh, when Heather did one, she found that very painful because yes, it's the opposite of how she normally works the audience, which is to work to go responsively and, and change the flow. And she she felt it was sort of against the way she tumbles the audience. Um, but what it's what it's good for is. Um by doing that it means you can get um you know, s- you know 10 speakers in an hour um if the talk isn't isn't gripping you you can wait for the next one I've been to, I've been to a a couple where it was like mm, that one was a bit strange but I don't I don't mind too much it's time to get a beer and then another one comes back um and also they the, the the as a presenter it is this um the extra pressure to get your stuff into a state where each of these slides will we'll pull pull you forward and through the story um means makes the better presentations a lot of the time and yeah, it's just that it really kind of like
1: evens the playing field a really great speaker yes. uh, can really transcend and just go to another realm, but you know it's it's a format that will allow an inexperienced speaker and just a good speaker to kind of be on par and as long as you just keep talking, you know Jason Grigsby in the article I just posted. Uh, talks about it ignite is less about live speaking and more about live editing, because you know you know what you're going to say at each slide. However, you're going to fall behind because the crowd laughs too much or something, and so you have to you have to be prepared to just kind of hop to the next point and be, be willing to let go of what you were going to say.
0: And I think it also tends to get a lot of newbies, so it's a very forgiving crowd. I mean, you can watch and ignite via video, I was about to say, from somewhere else, but the real um, chemistry of, of being in the room is, is what makes it really nice. It's a yes. sense that, like you said, it's a level playing field, but it's a sense that we're in this together. It, 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 I, there is an audience, but I, I do feel like it's, there's less of a, a wall. Yeah, I, I don't know if you're, you're aware of that, Brady, but oh no, no, I, no, I, no,
1: I yeah. agree. Well, I mean, one of the reasons I so I mean, I did this selfishly for a number of reasons. One was to I had just started the job with O'Reilly, and I wanted to get practice being on stage as an MC. Uh, hmm. The other thing was to look for new talent, look for undiscovered speakers, hmm. because I do I run conferences for O'Reilly as my living now, and we're always looking for new. Speakers and to give you know good speakers a chance to become great speakers by getting more experience on stage, and to just get new ideas, and so fitting as many ideas as possible into a night and giving people as much experience um, as we can is just really valuable to us. Well, to me and the community, Uh,
2: but I think it also influenced the conferences too because now now you have much shorter keynotes, right? Is that, is that, that was the, the flow? Yeah, depends on the conference, right? Well, but I mean, you you I certainly noticed at Strata and Web Summit and um, even Web Two, you 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 went with the shorter form uh, versions of of keynotes rather than the sort of give somebody forty five minutes version.
0: Yeah, but that's that's you know we all have ADD. I think we're all getting shorter keynotes. Yeah. <laughs> But I think you're right. I think I think the whole concept probably has um, has has flown into has has sort of you know spilled into other areas. So Brady, what is it that you do? We try to get a little practical here. Um, You know, what makes for a good uh, ignite event, and how have you catalyzed and sort of tumult others? Is it the diversity of the topics? Is it the is, is it the location and it could be all of the above? How do you sort of, what are the, the things that go through your mind when you're putting together an Ignite event?
1: Okay. Well, so when running any event, one, you know, you need to have, it's always first and foremost about the space. So we actually went on hiatus for a while in Seattle because I couldn't find a good space. And right now we have a 700 person theater, 800, 800 person theater. Um,
0: it's not that, that little bar anymore?
1: No, that bar shut down. So we were down for a year and a half. Uh, we're, no, we're at the King Cat Theater downtown. Guar oh. plays there. Uh, or at least they did one sticky ignite They had played the night before. Uh, oh. So it's always Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you don't have comfortable seating, if you don't have beer, Like you're not going to get the crowd to be still. So you can't have as many speakers. So we have a great bar. We have great seats. So we do two sets of eight. And then after that, it comes down to... Finding really good speakers for part of it, uh, so I usually handpick, or my, the the Ignite Seattle team and I, we curate, invite um, about half the people, and sometimes those are people who wouldn't have applied, and sometimes those are just excellent speakers. We're lucky to have Scott Birkin locally, or you know, occasionally like you came through town, Deb, so I was able mm-hmm. to for you, uh, and. First and last, like the first speaker, basically you kind of try to do every other speaker with uh, as someone experienced, someone less experienced so that there's a better chance that there's no, uh, not too many down talks at once. Uh, so I always open up with someone funny and I always end the first set with someone uplifting and then someone funny to bring you back and then someone Kind of thoughtful to end the night and then i try to put my other strong speakers in the middle now the thing to remember is that someone that but then the other important part is to find new speakers because one you want to give them a chance to become great speakers and then also who knows who's going to be good um inevitably someone that you thought was going to rock will fail and inevitably a talk to you you know had no expectations of is going to blow your socks off. We had a fellow who's uh Jeremy Bigham is his name who wanted to do a talk on how to make your backyard, uh, like a backyard planetarium. And basically it's build a 10 foot structure out of PVC and cover it with black cloth so that you can look <laughs> up the stars without, uh, without the city lights getting in your way. And it's a, you know, great concepts so we're like cool DIY talk, we weren't really expecting much. Uh, we thought it would be a good talk, but But his style on stage and just like his rant against city lights and why did people need extra porch lights and this is how you deal with it. He had the whole place dying. And now anytime he puts the talk in, we just accept it. Like he's, now he, he's gone from, uh, yeah, this is a neat DIY project. Let's, let's feature it to, oh, great. Jeremy's got another talk again. Awesome. On stage he goes.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like, uh, you know, sometimes it's about the content, sometimes it's about the person, and sometimes it's about the delivery, right? It's, you never know. You know, you never know. Have, what, um, what other, can you run down some of the sort of most popular or strangest topics at Ignite Talks? Because I think that is really part of the charm of Ignite, and I've never been to an official Pecha Kucha, but the fact that, that, they're usually these snippets or aha moments of ideas that you might actually have around a dinner party, but instead you're sort of putting um, some a formula around them. Whereas you know, TED talks are all about very intellectual, academic, and they're all and they're great, and we all love them. They also are a little bit outside the norm from usual conference, business conferences. And Ignite talks are also they they run amok from everything to baking, to, like you said, planting. So what are some of your favorites or the most interesting you've heard over the years?
1: So I think my favorite, my absolute favorite is Plight of the Digital Chickens, uh, which is done by Patrick Davidson. He used to be a writer for uh, Know Your Meme. And uh, I think he's now with the Berkman Center. And it was just basically in Second Life, there are these uh, Zion chickens and they're digital chickens and they're fully rendered. And so they slow down the server. And so people would buy these commutables, also really good, Ellery. Um, the, uh, so people started killing the chickens on the servers, and the breeders got really upset about that. <laughs> and so oh, God. It there's like whole chicken war within Second Life, and then some griefers found out about it and started going online and started killing chickens. And it's just this wonderful commentary about, you know people fighting a digital chickens and then b kind of like how the the digital journalists were covering that
0: oh you've got to be kidding
1: it's it's really it's a spectacular it's a spectacular <laughs> talk
0: that's awesome to me like what i love about ignite is um in the Bay Area, we had an Ignite that was uh, like a women's Ignite, which I alternately always sort of love the concept of putting women in a corner versus not. But it was a great night. It was really – I actually felt like I was back in like college. But I remember there were one or two people who were so freaking nervous beforehand. I mean I'm sure you see this all the time. They were more of the newbies and they're so nervous. And then they rock it and you can see their entire mm. life light up. Like, wow, I've just discovered I could do something I didn't think I could do, you know, or well-
1: – Unfortunately awesome. I need to unfortunately I need to get going. Uh, Tim O'Reilly just poked his head in and said, Hey, we have our meeting now. So
0: uh hard <laughs> oh, stop. Apologies.
1: Up. Um you no, know simpler, the man
0: calls, you know.
1: I'm, yes, the man calls. Uh <laughs> so I'm sending out the link <laughs> for the, most Tim is the man. for the most no? popular ignite talks. And oh
0: great. Great. Those are
1: fun. And iPhoning my way to retirement, which is number five, is awesome. I highly recommend it. It's the only Ignite talk to be featured in to be discussed in the wall street journal.
0: Awesome.
1: Thank you very much for having me on. Uh,
0: We're sorry. It had to be cut short and we'll, we'll be sure to have you back and we'll be covering global ignite.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: Bye. Bye. Toastmasters. Poor Brady had to run. That was a short one, but that was fun. Do you have a favorite Kevin?
2: Um, I've seen so many good ones. That was the thing I did enjoy the chickens one. That was at the New New York when I was there. I remember um, that. And there's oh oh there's the, oh it's interesting the the ignite that that we organised at Google I/O, um, which I which I quite enjoyed is is up there in the in the top there as well. Which is actually I'm in there and Brady's in there and um, a bunch of other um, Google and other bots there. So, but I I recommend it. Yeah, if look up the Global Ignite next week and go to one. Um wherever it is well, one of the things that i got at uh, um started this week was was chatting to um simon Willison, um uh, who's who does um lanyard um and he said
0: explain lanyard again
2: so lanyard is a a website l a n y r d it's a website that helps you find conferences um through your twitter connections that's that's basically what it does it's it's like a it's, it's sort of a uh, upcoming conferences wiki because you go in there and add conferences and, and speakers, but it's all mapped through your Twitter connection, so you find find it through people you're following, which which means it it's 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 handy for finding out when people you follow are are speaking. Exactly. Um, so they they him him and Matt are doing this um, through Y Combinator, which means they've moved to Mountain View for three months. And um, he, so he was saying, so, um, um what thread was I on here? Oh, so. <laughs> He said, "Where are the bar camps in the Bay Area?" And I realized that we don't have bar camps in the Bay Area anymore because if we tried to organize a bar camp, we'd have oh, three thousand people show up. Yes. Um, so, so, it's it's split into little bits. So we have, you know, cloud camp and data camp and um, privacy camp and you know all the things that, that we, you know, the bar camp was let's all get the geeks together in a room and let them make up a conference. Um, and that has now been so successful we can't actually do it anymore because we can't um, we haven't got any spaces big enough to do it in.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's funny. I hadn't thought that we don't have, I I think that's a sign of success. I do. Um, For those ever thinking of checking out either a bar camp or Ignite, um, yes, you can usually check the videos out online, but I highly recommend going in your city. So if Global Ignite is next week, um, check out one in your city because they really are just lightweight, fun, and in ways that most people don't get to do anymore. We in the techie geek community do it all the time or on the conference circuit. But I just love being able to – some of my favorite, you know, Ignites are usually the ones that have nothing to do with technology, because they're random and out of nowhere, uh, my most popular night that I ever did was the one I did on Alley versus Valley. I compared New York <laughs> to San Francisco, so that's always a hot topic. But um, like you know, how to how to make a cupcake in twenty minutes or things like that. There, I like I love the non geeky ones, or they're usually about. To Andrew's point in the chat room, they're usually about the human side of tech, which is probably why the tumblers here love them. And yes, Heather has. I, I do have an ongoing. Um, dialogue with Heather and a couple of our other friends, one of our other guests, Elizabeth Churchill, on they hate the Ignite, you know, framework. But um, if you're a great speaker and a conversationalist, you would hate it. Um, if you need, if you like sort of having training wheels, it's great. <laughs> so it goes both ways, I guess, right? Um, we've, we um, have a couple more minutes left, Kevin, and I thought an interesting topic to talk about this week would be, because I kind of missed it, so I'm hoping you didn't bing uh, google accusing microsoft of of stealing Google algorithms or something around search
2: oh so but this is this is uh, you know, a fascinating so the tale was um, Google found that some spell corrected results were showing up in Bing um so they they had some obscure word that was spell corrected to um, a slightly less a, a, a misspelled obscure word that was corrected to an obscure word on Google, and they saw those results showing up on Bing, and they said, well, "This is really weird. How is this happening? Because they're not doing the spell correction that we're doing. They just find the results." Um, and so they came up um, rather than ask the Bing people, they came up with an elaborate um, stunt where they um, made up fake search result pages for non-existent words, search for them. Um, on their computers at home so they weren't coming out of the Googleplex um, and then saw if they showed up in the Bing results later. Um, and this was, and then they did a big sort of song and dance about this week. Said, look at this terrible thing. Bing is stealing our search results. Isn't this awful? And uh-huh. lots of people said, um, it doesn't seem that awful to us, actually. Um, basically, what the Bing guys were doing, as far as I can tell, were um, when you opt in to the toolbar, they send um, each page you go to in sequence to to Microsoft so they can track your path through the web. And this is a very common way of making sense of results. This is this is what Google does to analyze its own search results within Google. And I was chatting to Kellen, uh, who's at Etsy, and he said they do this at Etsy as well. They sit there um, because people will often put a word in and then not find anything that makes sense and then work their way down to something that, that actually does make sense as a product on Etsy. So they use that as a way to improve their, their, their search results on Etsy. Um, because if you...
1: Um,
2: if you search for guitars on Etsy, the guitars cost ten thousand dollars, and you, you know you're not going to sell many of those. But they sell a lot of guitar picks, so they want to. When you search for guitars, they should actually be showing you guitar picks because those are things that people are actually likely to buy because they cost ten bucks rather than ten thousand um, bucks. So, uh-huh. so Microsoft was doing this on the client side, monitoring right. what you clicked on in sequence, and so they saw the sequence of type this word into Google, see this page, um, and then that, um, and they didn't. So it's like checking referrers. They couldn't show right. the Google results page because it's not an index. Um, but they showed the page the the query the that led to that, which anyone who runs a blog is used to seeing all these random stuff that brings people right. to their blog. So they were using that as a signal into their searches. So to some extent, it's a storm in a teacup. But it was, Got it, it, it. was it was fascinating to watch the the sort of um, the sort of the worldviews fighting out over that.
0: I was wondering what it was because it didn't really. It it seems all pretty kosher to me.
2: Um, well, it's you know, it's of all the people to sort of make a song and dance about people tracking obscure signals. I think Google <laughs> are in a <laughs> strong position there because they track all kinds of stuff, and they totally. and they are they are very ethical about it, and they they have a good team about you know keeping track of what they're doing and what they're not doing. Um, yeah. And I suspect you know they thought they they but they saw this from within their frame as. Bing is copying our results, and not and not from. Um, Bing is is using a, a signal we had not thought of, which I thought was was interesting.
0: Yeah, that that yeah, this is kind of interesting. I know. Um, we've got about you know we uh, well we're we're basically out of time. We don't have to. And, and poor Brady had to leave us at ten after. But um, so I, what I'm going to suggest is we go to post show and see if anyone in the chat room. Um, had any uh, questions or other stuff that they want to talk about this week before we do that anything if anything's glaring and on your minds that you want Kevin and I to sort of weigh in on let us know um, we will s- Heather sends her regards to everyone I'm sad that she couldn't be here Kevin was there anything while I'm, we're waiting for a few questions from the chat room if there was anything that you would dying to talk about this week that we didn't get a chance to talk to, talk about
2: let me see what I was um, excited by this week um Oh, I, I liked um, the, the post that um, John Hagel put up at at, um, yes, at Harvard. Yes, that's right. of social networking, which is which was very like many of the the, the, the tumbling rules and things we've, we've discussed here, and I thought that was that was well worth a look. Yeah, so, we
0: should put that post up on the Tumbl Vision site as well as the should, post that Valdis Craig's um did a. Um, uh, topical map of one of these live chats that start happening around Twitter lately where people literally all gather around Twitter around a hashtag. They're not at a conference. But they all decide, sort of like all of us, except we also have a podcast, all, you know, using Tummel at the same time. And they're sort of like IRC, but not. <laughs> it's, it's a little hard to use. So he did a very interesting uh, topographical map of that and of the, I think, the InnoChat weekly chat. And it was very interesting because you, you find the Tumblers when you take a visual look at Twitter, right? Mm. Who's connecting what information to who. And so um, I found that really interesting um, to look at. And uh, we should should get Baldus maybe to do some more work. Yeah, Blog Brevity was the one who did the blog post on that. And we'll put all these links up on the site. Well, that's about it for episode 51 with our guest Brady Forrest and my co-host Kevin Marks. And we're waving digitally to Heather Gold, who wasn't with us this week. Join us next week where our guest will be Paul Ford. Paul Ford has is a contributing editor to Harper's. He has been an NPR dude and recently wrote an awesome blog post called Why Was I Not Consulted? about the way the Internet and the web is changing our lives towards customer service. So goodbye from here. Say goodbye, Kevin.
2: Goodbye.